If you can't get enough of the Mixing Music Podcast and want three times the amount of episodes every week, subscribe to our exclusive content for only $4 a month or $40 a year at mixingmusicpodcast.com backslash exclusive. Happy mixing, my friends, and enjoy the show. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the Mixing Music Podcast. I am your host, DK. And with me, as always, is... What were we going to say? Living la vida, Luca. I'll take it. I, like I, I said, I was... got the Miami looking going today. So I'll, I'll rock with that. Again, confused what the Miami look means. It's it's one of those things when you see it, you know it. You look like, you look like you're... You just wrestled a crocodile. Is that what that is? No, being that I work a lot of Latin concerts and all that for like a lot of like bigger Latin people. Um, you look cute. We get a lot of people that like they now live in Miami and all that kind of stuff. So whenever they fly to LA for their concerts, like I just they look like they just came from Miami. There's a look. They look yeah, there's a look. And you're not wearing like a silk button up shirt with half the buttons down. That's kind no, of no, no, but. I am an older guy with a belly with a chain with a shirt that is a little more flattering to the belly. Like I'm not downplaying myself. I'm not. I know I'm handsome. That's one thing I'll always know. I don't care how fat I get. I'll always be handsome. But today I'm looking a little extra Miami. Um, and uh, I'm looking extra Asian. I don't know. What to, <laughs> I don't know. What to, uh, anyway, um, if you haven't re- realized, um, I've been out of the country for the last for the last uh, four weeks. I've been in Japan visiting family mm-hmm. um, with my wife and my in-laws and then I finally went to go see my family in Okinawa, Japan. Mm-hmm. Hence why I look like a Hispanic Asian. It's because I'm from Okinawa. They, they just look different. The, I thought you were going to say you got a little more of a tan. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, it's just different out there. So um, that's why I have facial hair and curly hair Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I have a hairy chest, most Jap, and I'm dark. That's that's not very Japanese. Yeah, and I'm like speaking. the opposite, which is not very Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm back four weeks. It was a great vacation. Um, I did not really. I tried not to do as much work as possible. I try. I tried to do as least amount of work as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And like my purpose of going on vacation, like every every couple of years, is to spend four weeks. Um, low key trying to get as bored as possible. So by the time I get back, I'm like ready to work. Yeah. So it's like a psychological trick I do to myself. And so I'm back. I'm ready to work. I feel refreshed. Um, although it wasn't as boring as I usually wanted it to be. Like it was still a lot of fun and I did a lot of things out there. Um, but we got a lot of stuff done. And uh, the music keeps changing and it's bugging me. My bad, y'all. Uh, but um, yeah, today's episode, we're going to talk about. Uh, starting and finishing mixes, what we pay attention to when we're starting mixes, what we pay attention to when we're finishing mixes, the signs of both, um, and how to set us up for success and how to close, when to, when to know when we're done and how to close the session down. Uh, that may include, uh, client interaction as well. Cause I think yeah. that's very, very important for starting and finishing sessions. For example, um, setting expectations and then also, um, how to ask for revisions and react when being asked for revisions mm-hmm. uh, during the final stages. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting. Um, Lou, mm-hmm. let's get right into it. Cool. Starting mixes before you receive the file 
And uh, let's let's in this scenario, let's do first time client. Oh no no no, returning client. Returning client. Returning okay. client, and they email you because that's how they typically do it. This specific yeah. client likes to email you. Yep. Um, you get the files. What do you do? What what? How do you start a mix? Uh, first do you off, set aside a day? Let's talk about like planning the day that yeah. you're going to do it. Like, do you set aside a day to do it? Do you pick a day? I do pick a day. Um, main reason is uh, the way I like to work my schedule is I have a day for revisions and I have a day for starting oh, and finishing. So yeah. you have like what? What's your day for revisions? Uh, usually midweek, like mid-week? Wednesday, Thursday. Cool. And what what yeah. days usually start? Uh, Mondays and Tuesdays. Interesting. What yeah. about uh, Thursday, Fridays? Uh, Fridays, I'm always running concerts. So That's my right. goal is to split up the week into four days dedicated to mixing and mastering. Um, and if I can, content creation within that. Um, but if uh, if I receive a new mix from a client, usually Monday, Tuesday, I jump into the office around like 10 a.m. And I try to get to all my emails as much as I can because Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm typically not as available. Fridays because it's concerts. Saturdays because there may be either some more concert work or some offsite work that I'm doing. Um, Like I may be taking on a weekend recording session, you know, Hmm. at another studio. Cool. Um, Sundays, I'm with family. Like i actively as best as I can try to avoid working any Sunday or else I'm charging double. So, so sweet. So you get these files mm-hmm. and you schedule a Monday, Tuesday, and maybe the occasional uh, Thursday. Yeah, exactly. Depends Wednesday, what's Thursday. going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you typically schedule a day as soon as possible, I assume. Yeah. Do you let the client know when you're expecting to start it? I tell them when to expect the first version. Okay. okay. And I never say the final. I always say the first version. Do you typically... Uh, is it normal for you to, like, when you start a mix in the AM, mm-hmm. do you typically finish it and send it off in the PM? No. Or do you usually take a couple days? I'll send it the next day. Uh, typically speaking, it's not hard for me because I do a lot of top-down mixing, um, which kind of minimizes the amount of time you spend per track, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, because of this, what I'll do is I'll start it in the morning when I have fresh ears, and then about, like, two, three hours in, after taking like a few little breaks in between, I need to get some food. I need to get this. I gain some perspective. I'll make some more adjustments and then I'll finish off with like automation at the end of the day for like, if it's like a big mix, like if it's a small mix, it obviously doesn't take as long, but like I'm right now I'm working on an album where every single song in the album is over 250 tracks. Um, so like those will take me a full day to mix one song. And even then I still consider it my first version. I'll, you Take said the, 250 tracks for one song? Yeah. That's way above not normal. Yeah. That's my... That's typically the, what I'm hired for the most. I don't... Like, I have a lot of clients that deal with, like, a lot of live instrumentation and want full production. So, thankfully, there's a lot of work, and that's so why I, I can charge most, a little that's more. That's most of my clientele, too, but I seem yeah. to average between 70 and 150. I rarely yeah. ever have more than 150. That's because crazy. I worked with a lot of like rock producers and jazz producers coming up. Uh, you know, you know how it is. They want more tracks, more yeah. instrumentation, more arrangement changes. Oh, we're going to add layered drums that, with live I drums. I feel like that's pretty this. specific for that client. That's that's pretty impressive to do yeah. 150 tracks and get through most of it in in how many hours? I assume at least six to eight hours. Yeah, and that's exactly. pretty quick. That's pretty quick. Yeah, it's because, like I said, um, once I actually sit down and dedicate a day to it, I actually get down to, like, my template, which is everything has to be organized. Everything has to be labeled. If not, what I'll do is I'll – I used to have Ian Bell help me out with this, um, but, uh, you know, hopefully Ian recovers soon. He broke his ankle, um, so he's – he hasn't been back even when oh, he came back to town. I didn't know about town. this. Yeah, he, his uh, injury was officially a full broken ankle. Holy cow. Yeah. From basketball? Yeah. Not with me, right? No. No, I hate Or at least either. not to my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, Because he's played with me a few times. Yeah. But, this, um, this is important. So I think that mm-hmm. goes into, this is a great question. This is from the live stream chat on Twitch. Ken cool. Mixes Music asks, do you prep your own mixes or do you have an assistant? So both. I typically do my own because I don't have a dedicated assistant right now. It when was. I, when it I was. Do, yeah, it was Ian Bell. Yeah. Which I would just tell him like, hey, can you- Who we met this? through Twitch. Practice? Yeah, exactly. He met, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. the one that came up with uh, Lou, Lord, uh, Lord, no, Lord? Wielder of Swords and Lord of the Boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Which still that. funniest funny. name ever. Um, but um, it's just kind of funny because um, I'll prep it myself for now just to kind of get- how important it, is mix prep for you as like a ritual? Extremely. 
Yeah. Extremely. Everything has to be labeled properly in their right place. And then that way, when it comes to me hearing something, I know where to reach first. And, 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 and I want to be clear, like the importance of arrangement and changing, prepping your sessions to your liking um, is even more important with 250 tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Because if let's say I don't like something in the snare. I don't want to have to look into the music folder and then the music folder, it's just everything scattered. Like there's a kick all the way to the right, 50 tracks down. And then there's a kick out mic, like 50 tracks to the left. And somewhere in the middle, there's a parallel kick and something. It's like, listen, all these kicks should be right next to each other and some down into their own subfolder. Um, I don't expect my clients to always have it perfect, but this is why whenever I do work with a new client, um, I communicate what the bare minimums are. Um, but if I have somebody else prep it for me, I just have them prep the routing and not the plugins. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do same thing. Um, when, or actually let's keep going. So yeah. you start it. So you, you take a lot of time or as much time as needed to prepare the session. Yeah. Colors, labeling, yep. grouping, routing, buses. I yep. assume some effects, yep. some default uh, effects that you like, and I assume you also add some during your mixing process. Yep. Um, and you just get started. How do you attack a mix? Because you, you know how yeah. I attack, but yeah. how do you, do you play, do you leave everything at unison and just play and tweak from a specific order, or do you mute everything? Like, How do you mm -hmm. start a mix? So typically I do top-down mixing, meaning that I focus on the buses more than I focus so, on the but, individual So you start tracks. playing. you start playing with everything unmuted. So you're just playing yeah. the rough mix the way that they intended, yeah. and then you go for, but which buses do you go for first? Do you usually go for vocals first? For I usually go first? for the music first. Main reason is most of the issues what with the vocals. What tracks in the music? Which, uh, which, just general melody, instrumental bus? or Melody and drums. Okay, you start with melody and drums first. Yeah. So like synths, guitars. Because yeah, a lot of people have a different interpretation of how loud the bass needs to be or how mm. much of a dominant force the bass needs to be. And that's very dependent that, that's on That's very the specific song. to Lou. That's interesting. I like yeah. that. That's cool. Because uh, think about it. Like on this, on one of those records that I'm working with them, like the bass does hit hard, but it's not the bass that hits hard. It's the kick that hits hard and the bass is supplemental to the bass. I mean, to the kick. And it, usually in a lot of other genres, like, the kick is supplemental to the 808 or something, which is the opposite. So your approach is very different. But if you listen to the music all in total, like just hit play on everything first and just hear it, you might actually say, yo, these are one of those records that the bass doesn't actually need to be the loudest thing. It does need to have punch. And because of that, if the bass is too loud or is not fitting the right pocket, then we need to find out. But a lot of times uh, there's a clash between if the kick is actually tuned you know, yeah. so I want to hear the melodies and I want to hear how the kick actually plays with those melodies to see, okay, do I need to pitch up and down the kick? Is this a live kick where I may run into phase issues? Um, and then I might start playing with the bass and all that. But getting the bass to fit is not my biggest issue. It's usually how do the drums and the melody work together? And that's, that's very like stylistic for you as well. And the yeah. cool thing is that uh, it's interesting. From what I understand, most mixers mm -hmm. um, start with the vocals. Because yeah. that's typically the most important part of every mix. But you and I both don't start with the vocals, which is interesting on its yeah. own. Usually, the most and I've never heard of anybody do like yeah. melodies and stuff. And, and obviously, it works for you. It makes it sound yeah. great. Thank you. So yeah. um, that's just interesting. So, uh, yeah. but anyway, I also think it's interesting. It's a totally different approach from what I do. Is you leave everything unmuted, and do you immediately go into like leveling? Or do you go into automation first? Do you panning. go into EQing? So the first thing you do is panning. Yeah, I want to actually see everything in its space. Because um, I'm sure you know about like pan depth and pan law and all that kind of stuff. And blah, blah, blah. Cool. Tell, tell us, uh, briefly explain that. All right, so in a nutshell, to the best of my understanding and the way it worked on consoles is if you were to take two signals and put it down the middle, right, you actually get an overlapping of signals. So uh, if you think about it, you'd get a three decibel increase and in a perfect room with perfect acoustics, it can go as high as a six decibel increase, which mm -hmm. is why you see pan, uh, pan law and pan depth uh, in Pro Tools and in other DAWs when you can actually edit it. It starts at three, but can go up to six. Yeah. So depending on your room it's and the its acoustics and all that, too. yeah. And depending on like whether you do post-production or just mixing for music, like depends what the actual pan law 
changes you need to make are there. So the first but, thing is you like to put things in there. In Sorry, I don't. I don't yeah. want to. That whole pan law and everything like that. We we. I don't want to get too deep into. No, no, no. Exactly. But, but uh, if it's down the middle versus pan left, you actually do hear a difference. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like a level difference. The only thing is that when it's in the middle, your ear perceives it as one signal down the middle, and it doesn't actually feel as loud when it's in the left. Technically, linearity wise, it's the same volume. You know, it's been compensated, but it doesn't feel the same. So when you start panning things, you start noticing that sonically it also eats up a different spectrum space. You know, so it, this is important because first off, um, we've talked about on an episode where we we talk about the importance of referencing in mono, not yeah. mixing in mono, but referencing in mono. Um, one of the things is that when things are panned left and right, mm-hmm. there might be frequencies that are clashing, yeah. but they're they they aren't clashing directly because they're panned in opposite directions. Yeah. So you mono it to see if there's clashing frequencies because that'll make just the left and right that much more clear with more clarity. But exactly. the cool thing is when you pan things at the beginning, you're mm. creating, nobody actually listens to anything in mono. Yeah. So you're yeah. creating clarity from the get-go with nothing other than space. Yeah, because the moment you start EQing things, and I see this a lot, which is not a bad thing. We all had to learn at a certain point, but when you start reaching for the EQ first, it's the same issue that I've seen people do in a recording session, which is instead of just changing the mic, instead of just changing the preamp or the distancing of yourself in front of or back from the mic or whatever, people reach for a corrective tool when there wasn't really an issue to correct. It might have just not been the right placement for it, right? Cool. So if there's too much bass in the mic, just take a step back. That's all it is. If it felt like there was too much clutter in the low mids, if it doesn't actually have to exist in the middle... What does it actually sound like when you pan it away? It might not actually be that big of an issue anymore. Now, obviously, when you consider that some people do listen in mono, then you want to do your reference checks and all that. But you might find yourself cutting less than if you were to mix everything in mono. Um, This is a question. uh, I'm going to change Ken Mix's music um, on Twitch. Ask another question, but I'm going to change the question a little bit. Um, First off, is it important for you to have clients send you their rough mix of that song? Yes. Um, cool. So that's important. And yeah. I, I almost like I actually require it. Yeah. It's very rarely that I say, hey, like, don't say I don't me. ask me for a rough mix or whatever. Yeah. Very rarely. And it's usually because I'm more involved with the actual original production. Yeah. Um, but OK, so you require it. You have that. Yeah. How often are you referencing that in the initial stages of the mix? Extremely. So um, is it more referenced in the initial stages or in the later stages or in the middle during? Uh, beginning and, and not in the middle. Mm. Uh, main reason is this. So, um, there's kind of two layers to the first question, which is like, how important is the reference to receive? It's extremely relevant, especially when it comes when you're considering your receiving stems. And I assume, by the way, I I think we've talked about this before. Everybody's Mm -hmm. a little bit different, but I think we're on the same boat that when people, when we ask for stems, I require everybody to send me wet stems. Yeah. If they want to send me dry, sometimes I ask for dry stems. Like if it's mm-hmm. so effed up that I just can't do anything unless they send me dry stems. But very rarely because yeah. I, I assume the same thing. You want wet stems kind where of? if you play back the stems, it is their rough mix. Kind of. Uh, if the reverb is directly on the vocal and the delays are directly oh, on no, no, the no. vocal, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, ask, I ask for reverb sends to be separate audio tracks. Yeah. Um, that's the only reason why I don't exclusively tell people the word wet stems. I just tell them like, hey... Um, I'm cool with the, like the instrumental tracks being wet and all that, but like, as far as the vocals and all that, like, tell me what delays and what the timing are. Like if it's a quarter note and blah, blah, blah. If you don't want to send me the bus and all that, cause I also can't always just use the bus, but like, just let me know what it is. I'd prefer if it wasn't directly on the vocal. I, I ask for, I always ask for wet stems. Mm-hmm. And if they want to go the extra mile, I'll say, can you give me wet and dry stems? Yeah. Um, but typically I ask for wet stems first. And then I specifically state... Yeah. Explicitly state, um, yo, I need your your sends and effects mm-hmm. to be separate audio tracks. Like your sends need to be separate audio tracks. I don't want vocals with reverb on them. I want the yeah. reverbs to be separate. And so most of the sessions that I get are like that. And it's, it's exactly excellent. so I like use that and I can EQ those or level those and or just create be like, no, nah, I don't like this reverb and I put it in my own. Yeah. It's great. And um, that's so, the main reason that the reference track is so important. Cause, like, let's say that you do get the dry stems or you get the partially wet, partially wet, uh, dry. Cool. Well, when I play back, like, I also want to know did they actually level everything or bounce it level to how they had it? Cause sometimes you'll get people who will, 
I like to think of it as accidentally leave normalize on in logic. And because of that, all the vocals are really loud and close to peaking and everything. And now you got to gain stage everything down, which is another part of the process of like prepping sessions and all that. But ideally speaking, as soon as I hit play on the stems, it should sound exactly the same as your reference. I should be elevating your mix, not completely repairing it from from scratch and Amen. having to redo all of your leveling. Amen. Um, yeah. Another thing, too, is then, uh, um, so you start off and you're looking at panning in mm -hmm. space and using the space. Um, how does your mentality change from the initial state of your mixing into the mid and end game of your mixing? Um, like what are you so paying attention to? What, what, what are you focusing start, on? start, I'm focusing on the groove and making sure that, like, if there was, let's say, a driving 808, what does the driving 808 and the drums do together? How does the drums play with the melody and everything, right? And how do the vocals actually sit in the mix already? So, like, the co cohesiveness of all the independent tracks. Exactly. Because, like, I have a lot of Latin clients, and a lot of Latin culture has always been very live and natural sounding versus like overproduced like reggaeton kind of stuff but if you listen to a lot of reggaeton stuff like you don't really hear like super bright vocals you still hear darker vocals you still hear a fuller lower mid in the vocals yeah. um so because of that i also need to find the space and how that fits with the instruments because like the drums may hit hard like on a reggaeton track but if you're dealing with like live drums like they actually have the live drums kind of thump a little more so they kind of occupy the same space so um, when I listen to the reference at the start, I'm kind of getting the vibe for it and then trying to build and carve out that space for everything to still feel natural in the middle. And then once I start getting to the end, I might go back to the reference and say, did I preserve the energy and the feel of it? Because um, my goal is to make sure that the feel and the vibe is translated. The mix can always be different. It could always be brighter. It could always be darker. It could always be louder. But the energy and the vibe of the record needs to be consistent. I like that. I like that. Okay, so yeah. you go from panning um, again. So for you, mm -hmm. you everything is playing. Yeah, and it's all routed. You start with panning and yeah. just general listening and referencing to the rough to rough to make sure that that general cohesiveness mm -hmm. is there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, after panning, what do you do? Um, typically leveling. Like if I I don't want to reach for an EQ unless I have to. Do you to. level everything first before putting on inserts or do you level and put in inserts at the same time? Level first then inserts. Okay, so you actually like go instrumental level level level. Okay, okay, panning level, panning level. Yeah. And then you start putting on inserts. Yeah, cuz cool. like I said, sometimes when you're panning, you actually feel like, "Oh, now it this, stands this is, out." This is actually super good cuz I do this and you've seen me do this and I mm -hmm. I live stream all the time on Twitch of me mixing, starting and finishing mixes. So uh, you know how I do this. And yeah. this is actually really great contrast. Um, two engineers that work so closely together, um, I do like a totally different thing. Yeah. So this is so <laughs> insightful. This is actually great. Uh, okay, so you go and level everything. Do mm -hmm. you even level the vocals or do you treat the instrumentals first, get that tight and so, done, and then do you do it vocals or do it all, all I, at the same time? So it's kind of funny. If the vocals are bad, I might do the vocals at the same time, but as like a general cut on the vocal master because I'm not trying to focus too much on the vocal because I know there's a lot that I want to do with the vocals. I want to do the ear candy stuff and this and that. And so before I start stacking all that and creating clutter, I want to find, okay, where in the music is it already conflicting with the vocal hmm. just naturally? Because if I have to over-process the vocal to then stand And you're out, not muting the vocals. You're not working on the vocals, but you, they're unmuted. If the vocals are poorly performed, then they're unmuting them. Okay, yeah, okay. like there's something about like... You just lose passion for the project or something. Yeah, I don't I don't want to lose the initial idea. The it's kind of like yeah, it's yeah, fleeting. Yeah, yeah. The inspiration so, is fleeting, yeah. Um I typically will not um mute the vocal and especially if the vocal is like a good performance and this and that, it's got its tuning right and this and that. But um if it's if it's poorly recorded vocals, I might mute them, but I need to hear where the vocal's at and where the clashing frequencies are at. Um main reason is sometimes like Let's be honest, most of the stuff that's down the middle is like kick, snare, bass, and everything else kind of has some level of panning, but so do the backing vocals. So do, you know, ad-libs and all that. So I kind of want to see, okay, you know what? This Rhodes is on the left, almost hard left almost for this vibe, but it's really muddying up that ad-lib vocal. So what of that Rhodes do I not need? Yeah. And and in this episode, we're not talking about the mid stage. We're talking about the beginning and the ending. Yeah. Um, but I would say that that's early, your early stage. Is there anything yeah. else that you want to say that you do during the early stages? 
Or do you want to just uh, go right to the end game? When it comes to early stage, keep your volume down. So you monitor quieter. I monitor way quieter. So is that different from your end game? Let's go into your end game and transition that way. Do you monitor louder towards the end? Uh, for a specific reason. So I monitor quietly because at the beginning because I want to focus more on the routing and the practical side of things. And then I want to, as I kind of finish with the practical, uh, by the time I'm at the end stage, I'm not thinking practical anymore. I'm thinking creatively. Completely. There's almost no practical thought anymore because at this point, I've already cleaned it up. I've already gotten the mud out of the way. I've already gotten the nitty gritty taken care of. So anything I do on top of this is just creative influence, mm -hmm. right? So at the end of it, when I do monitor louder, it's because I want to actually feel the kick and snare. I actually want to feel the impact of it. Like you can hear it, but can you feel it? You know what I mean? Part of it is that you shouldn't be monitoring loud. You shouldn't be monitoring at like 110 for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, like don't do that. But like, um, we, we know an engineer, uh, Bob Horn, Bob Horn, yeah, that, that monitors and loves to monitor at like a hundred ear bleeding loud. It might be louder than that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Dave Pizzotto was in the back and he's like, Hey, can you turn it down for an old guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the funny thing is, like, I understand it, too, because, like, one, when you think about speakers, um, not to go into it, but, like, um, the higher the wattage, it's more talking about the more headroom that you have. The bigger the speaker, it's, okay, you want to drive a certain amount of energy, but you need a higher amount of power to drive that size speaker. And it's not about like, what frequency are you putting out necessarily. Technically speaking, any speaker can put out just about any range. Obviously, some will do better than others at different ranges. But... Uh, a well-calibrated speaker should be able to perform non-dependent on its size. It will do certain jobs better, sure, but whatever. But if you've got a high-powered speaker, then that means you can get louder with less distortion. Mm -hmm. So that's the benefit of the, it. Us, the headroom for speakers. Yeah, yeah, we have smaller speakers, our Strauss NF3s, so we can't really get as loud with higher amounts of distortion yeah. or with lower amounts of distortion. Our distortion increases the louder we get. So... Sometimes that's actually Although really good these, to have these the PA speakers. speakers almost have no yeah, distortion. Yeah, they're no, they're they're insanely that's fucking a, it's good. It's a techno, yeah. it's a technological thing. The yeah. five inch woofers that we have should be distorting way more than they but are. They but they don't. But they don't. They make they make ATC I get sound scared distorted. Yeah, yeah. They actually, I've had situations where I'm scared of how loud we're playing, and the speaker's like, "I got this. Don't worry." <laughs> or like I hear like there was one time when you still we still had the ATCs, mm -hmm. and it was. We, it was the smack of the transient, mm -hmm. and then we played the same song and the smack of the transient on the ATC, mm -hmm. and it literally sounded like distortion. Like the smack just yeah. wasn't coming through as much. And it wasn't a frequency range thing. It wasn't yeah. because the ATC had more mid-range or whatever. It was. It felt specifically a distortion thing. Yeah. Like it just, the, the transient just wasn't as go. sharp. Yeah. It was so interesting. Anyway, uh, we're not going yeah, to get so into that. Like, but if so I get louder, it's because I actually, now that I've got the track together and I'm trying to feel it, maybe I distort the bass a little bit, but I want to see, like, in that distortion, did I lose some of the definition of the punch? Like, does it hit my chest the same? Hmm. You know, because when you go to a club and you go to a venue, like I said, working with a lot of Latin artists there, like... If you listen to Latin recordings, they don't really have a lot of bass in the recordings, but best believe, at the show, the bass player is prime time the leader in the band. Like, most MDs in Latin music are bass players. Hmm. So, an MD is musical director, so the people in charge of the arrangement for the show. But, for live shows. Um, realistically speaking, like, that is insanely important for live, but it's not necessarily for the record. Because if you listen to, like, Elvis Crespo's recordings, even the new ones versus old ones, like the dude that did Suavemente, like, bass plays an important role, but it doesn't thump the speaker. The kick does. You know, so I'm listening for where is the energy coming from? Where is it driving it? If you listen to rock, a lot of it is, like, bass and kick are very blurred, but they also f fill a very energetic spot where you can feel the speaker shake even if you don't hear the definition so much in the mix yeah you know so like i'm monitoring loud for that and i'm monitoring really low for the drums when i listen to the vocals like in this type of record do i want the snare to stand out in front of the vocals equal to the vocals lower than the vocals but i still need it to be audible so i'm looking i'm listening for transients that stand out the s's for instance so let's let's ask the age-old question that everybody asks like um how do you know how do you done? know when it's done when do you come? To, do you decide when it's done, or does the song say that it's done? For you, how how do you kind of? It's both. It's it's when I say anything I do, I no longer like as much as where it was, 
So I've started to become destructive. So you oftentimes, so you're saying that oftentimes you do, you go beyond done, but then you're able to recognize that you're beyond done and you kind and of you, step back. Exactly. Okay. Because I do then, the opposite thing. Like I get to done because I know I'm done. Yeah. But the get to done for me is sometimes you have to realize, okay, I did everything that I thought and my client's waiting. I'm going to send the record to the client. And if the client says, I love it. You're done. Stop it. Stop right there. And done. I don't care if you have any more ideas done because the funny thing is if the client loved it already and suddenly you start saying but i heard something wrong yeah oh that this then goes you into just like, put in doubt into your client one of the most one of the golden rules of engineering is if someone asks if someone likes your mix if the client likes your mix even if you hear problems with it just if you send up. a v2 or a v3 <laughs> or the next version do not change it yeah. No matter how much you think that something that they didn't mention has a problem, do not change it. <laughs> yeah. Now, as far as um, as far as like finalizing, like once I actually send it out and they approve it, I do go through a final process, which is kind of like a master check. If I'm mastering the music that I mix, which is pretty common nowadays for a lot of engineers, um, not always is the artist aware of like the mastering process and its own benefits or whatever. And that's totally cool. And most engineers don't always want to send out to mastering engineers because a lot of times they've already reference checked it themselves and everything. But I'll still go through like a master pass phase before I send out what I tell them is the mass, the official final master file. And then I'll upload that to file pass and send them that. But usually in that one, I'll master within the same session. Cool. Yeah. So I, th I think any other thoughts about like end game? End game, how so? Like as far as reaching it, or yeah, just like your thoughts, your mentality, what you're thinking, or your what you typically do. Yeah. Um, if you feel especially, if you feel a certain way about the production you have to voice it up or replace it and see if you can get away with replacing it. If you don't like the snare, I don't care how much you tweak it. You're never going to like it. You didn't like it from the start. And if the artist is okay with you swapping it, swap it. Like a lot I, of people I will, will say fight most the production. Of, I will say most times I don't even ask. I just do it. Yeah. Most people will fight the production when they can just replace the production. And I'm not saying that you should go in and replace everybody's production. I'm saying that if it's that bad and you have a good relationship with the client and because we're talking in the context of like returning client, um, go ahead and make the decision to replace it. Communicate it if you need to or if you feel that's best because I'm the type of person that likes to communicate. But I usually say, hey, I feel like that snare is just missing a little bit of weight and everything. Like I can EQ it up, but it just does, still doesn't feel the same way. Do you mind if I add a layer of my own snares and this and that that I like? And usually they're like, oh, yeah, totally. Do your thing. If it's going to sound better, like I trust you. And usually if it's a returning client, they already have that trust. So stop fighting the production because even at the end of that, you're not going to like the mix. You already feel a certain way about it. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is a mind game at that point, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, before we get on to my, my processes, and I want to kind of go through the same thoughts that you did, mm -hmm. but for me, um, I want to talk about our sponsor. Oh. We are sponsored by, I'm going to keep saying us, by the Mixing Music Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Because did you know that we have one episode a week, but if you subscribe, Mm -hmm. Go to mixingmusicpodcast.com forward slash exclusive for $4 a month or $40 a year. You can subscribe and get three times the amount of episodes every single week. That's right. You can get three episodes every week. Um, and these exclusive episodes are all 100% technical based about production, mixing, and mastering. Um, we have a bunch of subscribers and it is really, really great. It is hosted by Braden Flint. Often um, I'm guessing as well. Uh, it is Absolutely wonderful. So if you've been wanting more and more, you can't consume enough technical content, check out mixingmusicpodcast.com forward slash exclusive. Boom. Uh, another one is FilePass. We are sponsored by FilePass. Oh, Thank yeah. you so much for FilePass for sponsoring uh, the Mixing Music Podcast. FilePass is a file sharing software and website for engineers and producers. It's really great. Lou and I use it every single client and oh, every, yeah. every single session. It's a great way of making sure that you, they can never download your files without getting paid first so um, they can play back. 
full res audio files, but it can create like a, a paywall so they can't download the files unless they paid. Um, it's really, really awesome. FilePass is also great for collecting revision comments, mm-hmm. um, giving you like a to-do list of notes, timestamp notes. On if you're one. like me and you get uh, distracted really easily and forget what's on your to-do list sometimes as far as revisions, it literally makes it a checklist. So if you're interested in that, uh, the be- best deal that you can get on FilePass is mixingmusicpodcast.com forward slash FilePass. All right, uh, let's get back into it. Um, cool. How I start mixes mm-hmm. uh, is very different. So I get a lot of influence from Leslie Brathwaite, yep. who is one of my mentors. Um, what I do is I also spend a lot of time um, with my preparation. Mm-hmm. I arrange them, order them, rename them, color them in a specific way, route them, bust them, f- folder tracks, whatever, in a way that works for me. Yeah. And for me, the way that it works is I do instrumental before vocals. Mm -hmm. And I typically start with the bass and then immediately go into kick drum snare. So, like drums. Yeah. Uh, And the way that I do it is I don't play every, I I have a rough and I always ask for a rough. That's very, very important. What I do is I mute every single track Mm -hmm. and then I unmute the bass and I work on the bass Mm -hmm. and then I unmute the kick. So it's the kick and bass together and I work mm-hmm. on the kick and I slowly unmute one track at a time until I get through the entire instrumental mm-hmm. and then I work on the buses. Gotcha. So typically uh, I, I kind of do like top down, but it's I still do I still do more work on the buses, mm-hmm. but I tweak the individual tracks with the intention knowing that I'm gonna mess with the buses later. Yeah. Um it's and it that one by one mentality. So I do not play all the tracks at the same mm-hmm. time. And that's a very specific to DK thing. Um, I'm very much focused and thinking about making the kick and bass sound good together and by themselves. Yeah. And then everything else is kind of molding around that. So, you know, like characteristically with my mixes, the punchiness of the low end mm-hmm. is very, very important to me mm-hmm. and the drums in general. Um, and then as I unmute everything, I'm doing everything. So I, I'm doing panning, I'm doing leveling, I'm doing inserts uh, one at a time. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm unmuting them, if I find something's not working, I'll go back to those things. But mm-hmm. I don't at any point unmute everything just for a reference. Yeah. If I want to reference something, I listen to the rough mix. Because oftentimes I'll listen to the rough mix constantly the entire time I'm mixing. But it's mostly for understanding the purpose of this individual track. I noticed that I just unmuted a really loud tambourine, but I still don't have the context of what that tambourine is supposed to be doing in the context of the song. So then I pull up the rough mix and be like, okay, the tambourine is meant to be this loud driving force in the song. So now I know how to mix it without listening to the rest of the tracks. Um, And that's, that's a very like Leslie does the same exact thing. It's, it's an easy way for me to stay focused and with initiative, the entire track. And I, you'll be surprised a lot of the times and I, and the, the more experience I get and the more, more I mix, the less and less I tend to do. I think it has a direct correlation to the longer I've been doing this, the better my clients get as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they've been, yeah. like the mixes that I'm getting now, the stems that I'm getting now versus five years ago are significantly better. And if you're working with the same clients, they've been getting better. Period. Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, that's a big part of it. So like, yeah. I, I'm proud to say that 90% of my clients just do not send me bad sims. And I don't really work on bad songs, which is really awesome. So if, if you're one of my clients, be proud because <laughs> yeah, I do, I'm saying I don't work on shitty songs. <laughs> um, I will say a mentality thing, though, um, that is very specific to me is that I do a very production approach. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a mixer and I'm mixing, but I'm producing along the way. Yeah. So there's going to be times... Like, it's not weird for me, and especially if I have a good relationship with you, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be weird for me to um, recognize, oh, this hook is not hitting very hard. Mm -hmm. I want more low mids. And I'll recognize, like, from a mixer standpoint, I want more low mids that's going to make the chorus hit way harder. Mm. But I don't want to EQ in more low mids from the existing tracks. So from a mixing standpoint, perspective i'll produce and be like i'll add a a driven guitar to fill in those low mids yeah like so i'll be like creative as i'm unmuting things Mm -hmm. typically i do that sort of stuff after everything's unmuted and i'm kind of like working on the cohesiveness of everything 
uh, mid game. We're not going to talk about mid game, but and then I go on to vocals. And I do the same thing: lead vocals, mm-hmm. backgrounds, harmonies, whatever harmonies, backgrounds. Um, and then I unmute one at a time, do the buses and whatnot. Uh, and then um, I anyway. So end game. Uh, so at the end is when I do all of my effects and automation. Mm-hmm. So mid game, I'm probably the least creative. I'm thinking about cohesiveness and. Uh, but end game, I'm back to being ultra creative, mm-hmm. and and that's where my automation comes in. That's where my reverb throws, delay throws, any sort of throws, parallel compression, even some some compression, EQ, creative moves and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm back to being ultra co- creative, um, trying to get everything cohesive. Everything is at this point for, because of the mid game is sounding yeah. super tight and together. It's it's done, and this could be a finished mix. But now I'm. I'm doing that extra 10% that only DK can do. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's kind of where I go. And then and then after I listen to this song and I don't have any more ideas, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah! Because I think, I, I feel like I do a pretty good job knowing when not to do something. Because I, I also feel like if you force too many delay throws or too many reverb throws yeah. or too many like ear candy things, this also just becomes corny. Yeah. I, I had that with uh, the other day with a client where they're like, I feel like we can do more. And we started doing edits and I'm like, I feel like it took away from the record. I mean, it's your record, but. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. The, ah. So I, I feel like I have a pretty good sane understanding of when I'm done. Yeah. And it's when I understand that I'm no longer inspired to do anything else. Yeah. It's like, I'm not feeling anything else It's done. And yeah. I'm very, and I feel like this is the difference is that I think other people feel that, but mm-hmm. they don't have the confidence to recognize that's when it's done. Yeah. And I feel like I'm just really confident in knowing that, yeah, that's it. All right. I'm done. I think the, the, I guess you could say the lazy person in me, uh, cause let's be honest, we're, we're all by nature wanting to do less, but me recognizing that I'm always trying to like, okay, is there anything else? I know I don't necessarily hear it but is that me being lazy or is that me not hearing it yeah yeah and that's when i try it and i'm like okay you know what that's a good it's point. not working it's not working all do right you cool. find yourself so first off this is actually really great in the end game mm-hmm. you're tired you've already maybe you're tired maybe yeah. i don't know maybe not because you refreshed the next day i don't know yeah um do you feel like there are moments when you get lazy yeah absolutely i think everybody does i think it's Extremely important to take your breaks aside from your ears, but you getting perspective. Like uh, one of my favorite things to do as an end game monitoring trick is if I was in Studio A, like I used to be all the time, go play around a smash and leave the TV's audio running and the session playing. And if nothing caught your ear as a distraction or felt like, wow, that was kind of bland right there, then yeah, you're done. You know, but. A lot of times, I if I start feeling lazy where I'm just like, oh, I'm tired of working on this. Like, okay, is it that you don't hear anything and that's why you're tired? Or are you just getting tired for the day? Do you need to eat? Like what? Because sometimes, like, you hear a mix the next day and one thought is, oh, I don't know what I was thinking there. I should take that out. And that's why I said, like, I usually send it out the next day because I want to give myself the day listen. Where you first thing in the morning, fresh ears, you just wake up and you're like, let me listen to the mix. Okay, you know what? That kick's kind of loud. Okay, I, I'm going okay, to be, be totally honest and say I should do that because it does help. And very, yeah. re- I thought to myself, have I ever listened to it a second day and then accidentally made it worse after yeah. the second day? I can't really specifically think of a time. I'm sure it's happened. Yeah. Uh, maybe I get more frustrated than mm-hmm. my original frustration. So I go back to the original mix just because I was getting in my head. Yeah. But like nine times out of 10, it usually is a little bit better. Yeah. And for me, it but I, usually shows me more of what I could have added. Yeah. But typically speaking, I, maybe it's a pride thing or a confidence thing. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a laziness. I think it's a confidence thing. Mm-hmm. I rarely ever listen into a second day. If I do, it's already oh. after, it's after I send it. And then I'll leave notes it. myself. Yeah, I do it, and I'll do that on File Pass. Yeah, yeah, I'll File Pass pass and like say that. Yeah, you're you're just commenting and everything. You're like, the client's not going to get the notification. I am. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They might see it the next day if they check the link. Yeah, no, (laughs) like, because I want to communicate that I'm like, I think it's also it's not horrible or horrendous because it also shows that I'm I'm paying attention. I'm I'm giving it extra thought. Uh, but yeah, there's, I typically don't leave any comments and, and for some reason I'm just, when I'm done, I'm done and, and that's it. And I don't exactly. need to, I, I send it, I work on it and send it the same day. Yeah. And very rarely does that hurt me. 
Yeah. If 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 it, if the client doesn't like it, it's for other reasons, not because I sent it the same days, yeah. which is really interesting. Honestly, I think that's very different. I think that's a very DK thing. Like. It's kind of funny because uh, somebody was telling me recently, they're like, oh, um, like, I feel like I kind of need to correct this. I need to correct this one word, that word there. And there's a certain point, too, where, like, Endgame is also not- noticing that, like, if your client is overthinking a certain process, you also have to kind of communicate that, hey, your client may not believe it's Endgame, but you need to communicate when you honestly believe your your end believes it's endgame yeah like like one word being off and this and that like i have a client who said i feel like this word is a little bit darker okay you brighten it up now it's too bright uh can we darken it a little more can we darken it a little more but if it's just one word that's the issue and you've never heard the issue maybe you should communicate you're overthinking it now that's not the thing you should do for it's, every it's time hard there's to revisions. communicate that yeah. and have basically spit in their face without yeah. spitting in their face you know because uh recently i had a conversation with a client where we're already in the mastering stage uh for that you know album 250 tracks each song blah blah um there's a lot of vocals there's a lot of musical instrumentation there's been a lot of work that went into it because we recorded everything at the studio and everything like it's been a lot of work but suddenly he's like you know I think I'm going to respit the vocals, this and that. And the other artist is like, yo, why do you keep letting him re-record himself? You know that what he had was good. It's like, hey, at a certain point, it's not on me to build their confidence in their takes or this and that. If their issue is with their performance and all that, it's not a mix thing, which means you now have to communicate the difference between a mix and production edits and all that stuff. So I think going back to like the early game, I think setting expectations is part of the early game too. So for me... Um, this does happen and people try to get away with that. But yeah. and, and this is something that you're just going to have to learn with experience. But if you're going to give people bad news, it's better to give them bad news before you start. Yeah. So, for example, it's better to say, hey, I'm going to limit the number of revisions or mm-hmm. if say or you can say I do unlimited revisions, but I reserve the right to say nah when I feel like you're getting ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, and, and just like mentioning that. And, yeah. you know, I think. There's ways that you can avoid it. Like, for example, re-recording vocals is not mixing. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> and that that's an extra fee. Yeah. And that's uh, how, thankfully, we've been able to run it. Um, and, and, and then you find to see, like, people always want to change. But the real yep. test is, like, $50 for a revision fee... Or do I do I want to change it so bad that it's worth fifty dollars? The way I've told and like people you let it on, this, let, you let it like let them decide. The way I've told people is this: I have unlimited revisions, but um, after about like five, six revisions, if we're starting to notice that these revisions are extremely minor, and not to say that they're not going to make a big part in the mix or not. But rather, if we keep going back like, hey, can you take this vocal down like half a dB? Can you do this back up half a dB? If you have me going back and forth on things and it seems to be one-sided as to where it's coming from, there is a fee after 10 revisions. And it is $100 a revision, which means you're paying 20% of the actual mixing fee towards the revisions after 10 revisions. And I don't always exercise this, but I... Once I, you kind of know after the third revision, you kind of know after the third revision where you're like, Hey, I know we're on a third revision, uh, just to communicate. I do have this policy after the 10th. I don't think we'll have to go that far, but in case I know that these are kind of more minute things, try to batch as many of the revisions that you need done into one batch versus keep sending them out one by one. Cause sometimes the end game is ne- isn't necessarily that you have to do revisions or not. Sometimes as if they give you one revision note at a time. Yeah. That can take a lot longer than if they gave you all 10 in one shot. Yeah. There are times where I confirm with the client, is this any more notes? I want to make sure you got all of them yeah. before I get started. And, and this is where it starts to become interpersonal meta skills and rather, you know, there's no one right way to do things. You have to be able to understand the human spirit. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and be able to like low key read people, not in a manipulative way, but in a way that understand how to read the room. Yes. Yeah. Be able to read the room so you can better serve them. And and yeah. at the same time, you want to be effective. You don't want them to waste your time. And honestly, you don't want to waste their time. Exactly. I mean, generally speaking, if I were to pay you a, a substantial amount of money for mixing my song and I did not have the means or the ability to mix to your level, mm-hmm. and I, I find the value of your mix to be so something worth paying for i want to make sure that the end of the song by the end of the song i'm happy yeah and and i got what i paid for at the same time 
Mm-hmm. The cool thing about this, and the thing that most artists forget, or a lot, not most, but many artists forget, mm-hmm. is um, that the engineer, it's in the engineer's best interest to make it their best mix that they've ever done as well. Exactly. People, people like sometimes, especially newbie and artists, mm-hmm. start to like think that they're battling against the engineer. No, the engineer, you're paying them for them to give you feedback too. Yeah. Like I'm giving, I would be giving you money for you to give me the okay. Yeah. And if you thought something was wrong and you didn't tell me, I mean, I mean, I feel like if something was wrong, I'm paying for you to tell me. Yeah. So it's this balance, but some artists just really don't want that feedback yep. and they, they're very, they pr- just prideful. work with what you got. Yeah. So you got to be able to read that. Um, so I think the end game, as far as like from a technical mixing standpoint, um, the last thing that I do is after the mix is done, I go, I put on plugins and inserts for the master bus and I start mm-hmm. mastering it. And, uh, and most of the time mastering it most of the time, uh, because I do mastering mm-hmm. for many clients and labels as a standalone offering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't promote it because I don't typically want to be a mastering engineer yet. I still like yeah. mixing. Um, but when I'm mixing, I will do a mastering in the same session Mm -hmm. and do my insert thing to the point where if someone else was to master my song, Mm -hmm. I will leave on my mix bus processing. That is part of my sound. So like when I have you master my stuff, Mm -hmm. um, there's a limiter on it. I actually, I think (laughs) I take off the final limiter. I I think I leave because I usually use like two or three Mm -hmm. limiters. Usually two. I'm not going to lie. I use three, but I don't use one to limit. It, there's there's a specific a tone that I like. There's a specific tone thing that it does that it's, I like. Okay, okay, that's yeah. that's a different conversation, but uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, but yeah, so I take off the final limiter, yeah. so it's not like sausage, and it's it's so it's still got it's so it's quieter because mm-hmm. I'll do limiting, but I make sure that the output is the same as like before the insert, so I can bypass it and hear what the limiter is actually doing, and then I do mm-hmm. a final limiter which raises the volume. Um, I send you everything. I may even take off the first limiter too. Depending I, on the context, depending. I'll on. be honest. I think the last song you had me master was like minus one true peak headroom. Oh, really? I think so. Cause I remember thinking like. I, I also mix loud. Yeah. I yeah. also mix real loud. Yeah. Cause I'll be honest. My final limiter maybe boosts one decibel. This is a, this is um, a DK and a Leslie thing. <laughs> I did this because I was lazy, but then I mm-hmm. found out that Leslie does the same thing. So I just don't feel bad about it anymore. Do Sometimes you mix into a limiter. No, no, no. Sometimes my buses will be clipping. And if I can't hear it, I don't care. Oh, that's that should be the golden rule for anybody. That was literally the thing on consoles. It's like, People oh, the like, needle is slammed all the like, way to the right. It's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like like interns will be like, DK, your your drum bus is clipping. I'm like, yeah, do you hear it? No. All right, we're good. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> like I feel like from a gain staging perspective, I typically mix louder, which changes the tone of my mixes. Yeah. Like which I'll be honest. Everybody's talking about the new way of being everybody's going to start mixing in 32-bit and blah, blah, blah. Let's be honest. Nobody's done it quite yet that consistently. But with the whole floating point thing, like almost limitless headroom, digitally speaking, like we're talking about 1,000 decibel headroom. Um, yeah, you could redline and it technically would never clip audio-wise. You could redline. I don't, I don't know the science of theory. how that works, but I feel like it would. No, so you can actually render a 32-bit clipped uh, track and then just drag it down and clip gain and you'd actually see the dynamics come back. Really? That's the, that's the whole idea behind 32 bit floating point. It's ah. the idea of limitless headroom. Okay. I did not know that. That's yeah, interesting. There's limits within your DAW, but the idea is that it in itself is virtually limitless. I did not know that. Yeah. That's cool. Um, but anyway, uh, as far as like end game and first game or start of the game end game, I think that's game. Mid, yeah. We didn't really talk about mid game. Um, but that's, I think that's pretty important. So one kind of some key takeaways from what I learned from both of us talking here is how you start a mix. Um, so first off, having a rough mix to reference is very important. Oh yeah. Uh, seem that's pretty consistent across the board for every mixer. Yeah. Except Um, Jason Joshua. How you, well, I think he does. I asked him specifically. He does. Yeah. He does have the rough mix, but you know, fuck it. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And, um, it's interesting. So rough mixes are important for most people, and they use it for referencing. Uh, organization, coloring, all of that mm-hmm. workflow and organizing is super important for the purpose of getting through it faster, yep. for staying focused and getting through a mix faster. Um, 
Uh, everybody starts mixes differently. You just need to figure out. It. And the thing is, if you don't have a specific way to start, it's okay. The way that I start and the way that I end mixes always evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be evolving over time to kind of refine how you do it. Um, but in the, if you don't know how you start mixes and you get cons- like anxiety every time you start, it just means mm-hmm. you haven't done it enough. Yeah. And once you start building neural neural pathways and habits <laughs> after like repeated repeated uh, actions, um, it's it's going to become something that it should. The habits that you do, whatever you do to start a mix and to end the mix, um, should be habits for the purpose of staying in the zone, getting in that flow yeah. state and focused. Uh, you don't want to you you want to relieve your brain of the stress that it takes to think about how to start a mix. You just want to start it and get immediately into the flow state as fast as yeah. possible. So whatever you do, it doesn't matter if you unmute everything and start with your 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 melodies, uh, or if you mute one track at a time, or if you do something else. It doesn't matter. The point is, if you're used to it, if you like a certain way, even if your reason is because I'm lazy. I think yeah. that's a valid reason. Or it's like, I, I visually like this. That That's a valid reason. Like, whatever. Or this is my logical reasonings that I've come up with. That's a great reason, too. Whatever it is, um, uh, it's it's a decent idea to start habits and, and be open-minded to continually refining those habits over time, yeah. even if it's a slow process. Keep in mind, DK and I use templates, but those templates are not based around a sound. They're just based around getting started fast and keeping us organized in a way that works for our in our efficiency's best interest. This is interesting. Every time I talk about making my own plugin presets, mm-hmm. so plugin presets and session templates are completely a bunch different. of noobs on TikTok and yeah. YouTube Shorts and Instagram Reels will like downvote it, hate it. Yeah. Be like presets, templates. Now, nah, it is it is very important that you utilize this stuff. It is not a noob thing because using templates as a noob is buying templates because you want that crisp brown vocal and it automatically puts in inserts for you and then you leave it. That's not good. Which industry secret here? If you want that crisp brown vocal sound in his recording template, it's a plus three decibel boost on a high shelf, and that's it. Literally, that's it. So Chris Brown doesn't record with a million plugins. He records with FabFilter Pro Q3 with a three decibel boost above 10K on a shelf. And that's absolutely it. Yeah. So, um, and also the engineer, the microphone, the room, the, yeah. uh, the chain, everything, right? But uh, anyway, so coming back to that, um, we use templates, but it's just routing. So yeah. my template is a master bus with insight and tonal balance control from Isotope. That's all it is. Yep. And uh, a mix bus, which is empty, that mm-hmm. feeds into the master bus, and everything feeds into the mix bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then four, I have a verb one, verb two, verb uh, delay one, delay two mm-hmm. that are empty. No, I actually started filling in verb one and verb two with like default Valhalla presets, but then I change them. Um, so all it is is just preset routing with for the sole purpose of so I can start mixing thirty seconds faster. Yeah. A minute faster, so it's just less time. And there's small things too, like I turn off pre-roll and I, I adjust the tempo and things like that, or like my my view is different from tracking versus mastering. Mm-hmm. Um, small things that just it help me get into the zone faster. That's all it is. I'm not mm-hmm. relying on the template for tone. Yeah. I'm, I'm still creating my own. Uh, same thing with presets. Like yeah. if, I, if I have presets, it's like, for example, many of my presets are just zeroed out because the default on the plugin Automatically is do like this already doing something. Yeah, yeah, it's already doing something. Yeah. So I just zero everything out and I create a new preset. <laughs> like my favorite thing that I is not technically zeroed out is uh, Pan Man from uh, Sound oh, Toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, why does it only go to the left as the default? You know, I I thought the idea was Pan Man going like left to right was the default thing most people wanted it for. Um, but instead it's like, no, no, no. It's like, like God, that's annoying. So things like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's important to, again, for the purpose of helping you get into flow state. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that's it for this episode. This actually so. ended up being pretty cohesive. It's an hour long episode. Uh, thank you no so shit. much for listening. Um, once again, if you're interested in listening to more uh, content about 
uh, from the podcast. You can go to mixedmusicpodcast.com forward slash exclusive. I do a lot more content outside of the podcast, including live mixing. You can watch me live or you can watch my previous live streams. Or And I do additional content um, on my YouTube channel. That's Mixing Music Podcast forward slash YouTube. Um, my most recent video, I actually talked about Lou's tracking template. Oh, yeah. And how to record vocals fast on Pro Tools. It's one of my most popular videos. It's really great. I give you, I let you, I give you the link to lose recording template. Um, Really, really important video, I think, especially if you're trying to record vocals for a living. Yeah. If you Um, need the technical breakdown, there's an associated video for that too. Yeah. And I think that's linked in the description for that video as well. Lou has a channel. Anyway, um, that's that. For more information, there you go. Just go to mixingmusicpodcast.com. All right. On that note, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of our current and new uh, monthly subscribers. Happy mixing, my friends, and stay saucy. Yo, what up? It's DK. Thank you so much for listening to the Mixing Music Podcast. I just want to do a quick plug about Antares and Autotune. Antares makes the original industry standard Autotune that we all know and love the sound of. We are sponsored by them, so if you visit mixingmusicpodcast.com backslash autotune, we do get a small kickback from every purchase. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Please enjoy this episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com podcast. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said. Done.